The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Cromer Mashburn Family Studios at Public Radio WMKV and WLHS. Real Life Real Estate is your public radio source for information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And here on Real Life Real Estate, we try to give you a wide range of of looks at things uh, ranging from sort of the basic skills you need to know to get into the real estate business to more of the exit strategy and financing type of discussions and every once in a while we are able to bring you a a fairly unique uh, little niche strategy that you can add to your tool bag and do some cool things that maybe other folks in your business can't do. And that is what we're going to be doing today. My guest today is Joe Lucas, who is an attorney who uh, focuses his practice on real estate type matters. He has a six attorney firm with offices in Dayton and Cincinnati, Ohio. He's a Harvard College graduate and University of Pennsylvania Law School guy. Before he practiced law, he was in the Air Force, and now he is uh, actively out there working with real estate investors and also being a real estate investor himself. Uh, Welcome to Real Life Real Estate, Joe. Hi, Vina. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk today about a a strategy that, uh, while maybe you didn't quite invent it because it's been around for a while... You saw a real opportunity in it uh, based on something that has happened in the market in, since the real estate crash. And it's something that, that uh, folks might have heard referred to but not exactly know what it actually is. And that is the zombie foreclosure. We hear in the media about, about people with zombie houses. And it, it, it sounds very scary, but let's let's talk about... Uh, what that opportunity is, and uh, then we'll talk about uh, how it is that uh, you have found a way to make money from it. Sure. Well, I think, um, and and again, thank you for having me. Um, Zombie houses, zombie foreclosures are a topic that's come up as we've had the the real estate uh, crisis ever since probably 2008, and it's grown over time, and it's starting to recede a little bit, but uh, you still hear about these. And what these are is these are properties that... uh, if you were to uh, drive through a neighborhood, you might see one of these properties, and it's sitting empty. Maybe it's starting to deteriorate uh, in the weather or, or due to vandalism. 
but uh, there's no for sale sign on the property, there's no for lease sign on the property, and if you wanted to lease or purchase this property, you would be unable to because there is nobody uh, expressing any uh, uh, interest in the property, there's nobody uh, exercising their ownership rights, there's no lender exercising their mortgage rights, uh, and so the property is simply sitting empty and uh, starting to deteriorate. Hmm. Um, and so in, in uh, certain uh, circumstances, and those are, are uh, economically based circumstances, these properties uh, tend to, um, uh, I want to say, accumulate in large numbers. Um, now, my uh, law practice is uh, based in southwest Ohio, so we practice primarily in the Dayton and Cincinnati uh, regions. And in these areas, there are quite a number of uh, vacant properties. Not all of them are zombie properties um, where there's no party expressing interest, but uh, for example, in, in Dayton, uh, I believe the uh, our local newspaper uh, stated there were 7,000 vacant properties uh, in Montgomery County, which is primarily includes Dayton. So um, with a large number of vacant properties, uh, a fair percentage of them are going to be these, vac- these uh, zombie properties where no one is expressing interest. Um, and so uh, the existence of these properties creates an opportunity for real estate investors who can do something with these properties. And, uh, and uh, so that's, that's uh, why don't we tell you a little bit more about today? So, so to, to be clear, what we're talking about here is a property that somebody owns. I mean, there's, it's not, it's not that it is unowned. There's that whoever borrowed the money against it last is still the owner of it. And there is a mortgage often very much larger than what the property is worth right now, like like literally by orders of magnitude larger. It's got a $70,000 mortgage. You might pay $700 for the property, that sort of thing. And yet the, the owner has abandoned it in, in the sense that he's not trying to do anything with it. The bank has not done anything. I mean, literally, when we look these up, we either find that the, the loan could could have been years in arrears with no foreclosure action ever filed, or we also see situations where the foreclosure action was filed, went sometimes right up to the sheriff's sale, and then when it was withdrawn by the lender, which creates a lot of confusion for the owner. That's right. That's exactly right. And so if you're the owner of one of these properties, um, you know, maybe you had a, a, a good job and, and you lost it um, and, you know, something happened and, and perhaps you had to file bankruptcy or something else. A lot of owners, they own property, they file bankruptcy, uh, they get their discharge, and then uh, following the discharge, uh, they say, well, I don't own this property anymore, even though the title remains in their name. And they're waiting on the lender to foreclose. And what happens is, is that the lender's um, they uh, have gotten a little smarter over the years, and so instead of foreclosing on 100% of the properties that they hold delinquent mortgages on, they actually do uh, what you might call a triage, where they look at the individual property and they say, well, does it really make sense for us to foreclose on this property given our cost structure? So a bank has a cost structure in recovering a property. They have to pay a law firm to start and uh, pursue a foreclosure. They have to uh, pay for title work to be done. There are court costs. There are auction costs, like advertising costs. Once they get the property back, they're going to have to hire a realtor to sell it for them. They're going to have to pay back taxes. They're going to have to pay a property stabilization company to come in and change the locks and cut the grass and winterize the plumbing, etc. So there's a there's a significant cost structure involved there. And if you're a, um, a bank who is, uh, 
want to say being rational about things, you might say, you know what, there's no recoverable equity for us in a particular property, so let's just not bother with the foreclosure. Or perhaps the uh, the bank officer didn't do that calculation up front, and it was only after they had proceeded through some uh, fraction of the foreclosure process that they reached that conclusion, in which case they might dismiss. Mm-hmm. So... Typically, our zombie foreclosures, the properties that we're talking about today, are not beautiful houses in beautiful neighborhoods. I would I would generally say that's the case. Uh, however, I have gotten some pretty nice houses. Uh, um, I mean, all all neighborhoods are depressed uh, price wise, some more than others. Um, I would say that the the great majority certainly exist in uh, in rural or excuse me in uh, urban neighborhoods, but some of the older suburban neighborhoods, uh, which can be uh, very livable. Um, also contain these properties, so it's it's not just uh, uh, I want to say the uh, uh, the classic uh, um, rental neighborhoods where you can find these. You can find them in some of the older suburbs as well. Mm-hmm. I read somewhere, and this has been five or six years ago, so the number may have changed upward or downward. That in Ohio, just as as a, as an example of one of the states where it takes a long time to foreclose. <laughs> Uh, banks spend about $15,000 in that whole process that you described. And so the property that when they're finished with it is going to maybe sell for fifteen is the kind of property that they're, they're most likely to just not pursue the foreclosure on. Uh, I would generally agree with that. I think uh, the in my experience, the numbers are as high as 25 or 30. So if a bank sees that a property would only sell for 25 or 30,000 or perhaps less, uh, you're in the range where they may consider not exercising uh, their rights as a mortgage holder. And so what uh, what's great about uh, the opportunity for investors here is while it may take a bank uh, fifteen or $20,000 to pursue the foreclosure and to uh, try and harvest some of their equity, if you can, as an investor, can contact the owner of this property and strike a deal you may be able to get this property for uh, on the order of fifty or a hundred or five hundred dollars, depending on what a property owner is uh, requires from you in order to part with the property. Um, the property owner is going to look at the property and say, "Well, I have a property. Maybe it's worth twenty thousand dollars, but in reality, I owe seventy thousand dollars on it. So I have no equity in the property. I'm not living there, so I'm not deriving any value from living there." I don't have a tenant in there because it needs a little bit of work, so I'm not deriving a rental income from from the property. And so what what remains is uh, it's just a liability. I get notices from the city to cut the grass and and paint, and uh, you know occasionally I have to go in and and uh, barricade the door because it gets broken into. So basically, for for the property owner, it's simply a liability. And so for them. Uh, for many property owners, if they receive a, a, a small gratuity or even nothing, sometimes they're willing to accept in exchange for transferring the property. Very good. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk more about what that process wor- is. And if you're if you're if you're saying I'm gonna I'm gonna turn off my radio right now because I don't want to do short sales, that's not what it is. I don't want to do short sales either. <laughs> and neither does Joe. This is something very, very different. We'll talk about it more after the break. You can give us a call with any questions toll free at 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email with your questions. Send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and we are talking today to attorney Joe Lucas about a, a, 
profit-making opportunity in some of those zombie foreclosures that we've all heard about and read about, particularly if we live here in flyover country. You know, bad news in San Francisco, if you're listening, you probably don't have a lot of zombie foreclosures there because there's not too many properties that would be worth less than what it costs the bank to foreclose on the properties. But uh, Joe, you mentioned that these sellers or these owners of these properties uh, look at them as a liability, and and they are because they, they they always owe much much more than what the property could ever sell for. They've long since given up on the idea of renovating it. it, it some of these properties have been vacant for a year or more. The thing that surprised me when I started sort of keeping my eyes out for them is that the owners often don't even still know they own them. I get I get these calls from people and they say. You wrote me a letter about this house. I don't own this house anymore. And I say, well, <laughs> actually, you do. You're still you're still in the public record. And they say, but but the bank foreclosed. And I say, well, actually, you stopped opening the mail <laughs> because what they actually did was they dropped the foreclosure. You're absolutely right, Vina. And uh, I myself, I'm a, I'm an investor myself. And uh, uh, one of the uh, problems we have in uh, in urban investing is is that uh, occasionally uh, people dump litter in your yard. So. I had uh, somebody dump litter in the yard of one of my properties, and I was cited by the city for having litter in the yard, so I had to show up for housing court. So I showed up for housing court, and uh, uh, in uh, in the Dayton area, it's a kind of a slow process. So I was sitting there uh, along with a bunch of other defendants and uh, waiting for our cases to be called, and of course we were chatting. Uh, and uh, there were several people there that said that they were being cited on houses that they didn't even know that they owned anymore. And so... Uh, I had my cell phone with me, and uh, and we had a good signal in the courtroom. So I actually looked up all the houses that they owned, and uh, the ones that looked good, I uh, I got them to agree to give me for a hundred bucks each. So I went to housing court, and uh, I got free uh, or almost free house uh, from a, from a gentleman. It's a it's a pretty nice uh, four bedroom, uh, two bath house in uh, in the city of Dayton in north northwest Dayton. So uh, this does exist. It is a problem. Um, and for the record, I had to plead guilty because I did have uh, litter in my yard. So I'm a, I'm a convicted criminal in, the, in Dayton. I think it's an unclassified misdemeanor. Uh, but it was worth it. You know, I paid a $122 fine, and then I bought a house from somebody for 100 bucks. There are a lot of people in this situation. And, in fact, the, uh, the judge who runs the housing court in Dayton, uh, I've, uh, I've sat in her courtroom a number of times on other cases. She, she certainly recognizes that this problem exists, and there are – uh, public-private partnerships that uh, have been started in various uh, jurisdictions, including uh, in, in the Dayton area, we have uh, land banks and, and other uh, uh, organizations that are designed to try and provide a, a uh, an outlet for homeowners who need to part with their property. Um, but it it's a challenge, and there's not a lot of uh, I want to say knowledge uh, uh, among uh, the homeownership uh, community on what to do with these properties. And so um, the, the city and the county, they're trying to uh, come up with, uh, with options for folks. But uh, one of the things we're talking about as investors is we are providing an option. And what's, uh, what's great about uh, this model is uh, we don't wait until somebody gets hauled into court before we offer them an option uh, when they're already going to end up having to pay a fine, even though it's not, not too large. Uh, we're actually going to them, uh, ideally, before the, the court comes to them. And we're off, we're identifying to them, hey, you have a problem. We're helping them classify the problem by uh, describing what kind of situation they're in, and then we're offering them a solution. And it's a solution that, uh, for some people, uh, works works quite well. Mm-hmm. And let, let's be clear about 
what happens here if no one steps in, if, if, if an investor doesn't step in or the land bank usually steps in at, at a final stage here, uh, most of these properties are just going to end up going to tax sale. That's correct. And I think one of the problems that we have uh, is um, in, in a quote-unquote uh, very viable uh, real estate market, um, properties simply sell. You know, If you don't want your property, what do you do? You sell it. And if prices go up 2 or 3% a year, you never really have this problem where your property is severely underwater. But because uh, property va- prices have fallen so far, you have a lot of properties that cannot be sold. So if you can't sell your property, what do you do? Well, we have a concept of a short sale where the lender agrees to take less than they're owed. But in order to obtain a short sale, you have to fill out a, a thick uh, paper, a thick package of paperwork called a loss mitigation package. you got to write an essay about your uh, your horrible financial condition, your hardship, uh, and then you've got to find a buyer. The buyer has to sign a contract, and you have to go back and forth with the bank, and the bank may or may not take uh, the amount of money that your buyer is willing to pay. So it's it's a lot of work. So what happens is, is a lot of people, they don't want to go through that long process. So instead of going through that long process, what do they do? They just file bankruptcy, and they say, well, that'll just take care of it. <laughs> and so they file bankruptcy typically, uh, at least in the Dayton area, uh, it's primarily Chapter 7s. At the end of their Chapter 7, uh, which takes about five to six months from from filing to discharge, at the end of their Chapter 7, they get a discharge, and they're no longer personally liable on the loan. However, the property is still in their name, and the lien of the mortgage still is attached to the property. So at that point, uh, normally, a, a rational lender would foreclose except when a rational lender says, well, there's no money to be had, no equity to be recovered. And that's when you have a zombie property because the lender says there's no money, to, there's no equity to harvest, and the homeowner says there's no use, there's no uh, good use for me, I don't need to live in the property, I can't rent it out in its current condition. So basically nobody has a use for the property and it sits vacant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the key thing in in that part of the situation is that giant mortgage. The the one of the reasons that the owner doesn't want to do anything to it is because if he does go and improve it, he's just given the bank something valuable <laughs> valuable to foreclose upon. Right? There's no there's no real use in going in there for him and doing a bunch of work on the property if all that's going to do is trigger the bank to say, "Huh? Well, now we would kind of like to have it back." Right. It's like uh, it's like putting gas into a wrecked car. If you're fixing up one of these uh, properties, you may perceive that, hey, I'm never going to get my money out of this. I'm never going to be able to sell it. And if you're not going to be able to sell it and get your money out, I mean, unless you're going to live there and enjoy it, how are you going to get any value out of it? And if you are going to live there and enjoy it, you don't know how long you're going to be able to live there and enjoy it because the, the bank could, hypothetically, foreclose at any time. Now, the reason why this uh, investment model works is because it the model is based on lender behavior. So everybody who uh, engages in, in any kind of a marketplace, we have behavior. You know, you watch the World Series of Poker and you watch these people, you know, winking or, you know, their face is sullen or maybe their face goes flush when they, you know, get a good card or a bad card or whatever. Well, lenders have behaviors as well. And so um, what got me involved in this uh, um, concept initially was – observing lender behavior where lenders were simply refusing to foreclose or they were starting a foreclosure to try and uh, prod the homeowner to do something and the homeowner just says hey you know I'm not I don't want to I don't want to do a short sale I'm busy I just I don't want to be involved I'm just going to file bankruptcy or sometimes they just move away they don't file bankruptcy but they they move away so in those types of situations nothing is happening with the property and the lender after prodding the homeowner 
and getting no result, they just say, well, we're not doing anything either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the thing that most people do think when they run across one of these sellers who has a house that's been vacant, metal's probably been stripped, it's boarded up by the city, whatever, but it, you know, it still has some economic value to the buyer, is, okay, so let me institute the short sale process and spend eight months maybe or maybe not getting the bank to say yes, and I don't want to do that, thus I'm going to walk away from this deal. You have a different kind of legal action that you use in these cases that I think most real estate investors would have heard about it from some perspective, but maybe not from this perspective. Let's talk about what that legal action is. Okay, so once you as an investor, you approach the owner of the property, and they say, yeah, I don't want the property. And the investor then says, okay, well, here's what I'd like. I'd like you to deed the property over to me with a quit claim deed. And I will. the investor would then take title subject to the mortgage and any other liens on the property. So there could be mechanics liens, judgment liens, tax liens, all kinds of uh, things appearing on title. So uh, the property owner says, sure, that'd be great. They sign over the deed to the investor. Okay, this works especially well if the homeowner has filed bankruptcy because they have no personal liability on the loan anymore. So they have no, there's no downside to them doing this essentially. Okay, so so once the uh, uh, investor has gotten title to the property, uh, they can fix up the property, they can rent out the property, uh, encumbrances on title do not really prevent them from doing that, but they certainly can't sell the property and give clear title to a buyer without clearing the title. So the way we clear title is we file what's called a quiet title action. And a quiet title action is it's a lawsuit. You uh, Essentially, uh, the investor, the owner of the property is the plaintiff, and all of the lien holders are named as defendants. And so like a mortgage company, a second mortgage company, a uh, like a, a plumber or an electrician who had filed a mechanics lien could be a defendant. Um, uh, you can also name uh, the county treasurer and some other parties. Now, you'll never uh, – a quiet title action will not strip off uh, tax liens. They won't strip off uh, delinquent uh, real estate taxes. But they can strip off old mortgages. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, first, um, you need to look clear- carefully at the mortgage and uh, find some aspect of it that uh, – uh, makes it questionable whether it's enforceable. And uh, a lot of times that's contained in assignments of mortgage when it's gone from party A to party B. Um, but that's not really the, the key thing. The key thing is you have to serve the bank and then see whether the bank responds. Uh, in my experience, about 75% of the time with these zombie properties, the banks do not respond. And so uh, you can win by default. Um, the times when the banks do respond, typically the bank itself isn't going to own the mortgage anymore. They will have sold it to a third-party uh, debt collection company. And that company, they may file an answer, and they may say, hey, no, we have a valid lien. <laughs> uh, but they're not really saying, oh, we're going to fight you in court. What they're really saying is, why don't you offer us some money and we'll agree to release the mortgage, which is the whole point of them uh, running a collection agency. They're there to collect money. And so in my experience, uh, you can oftentimes uh, get these mortgages released for five and 10 cents on the dollar of their uh, face value. So, um, and if they make an offer to release the mortgage that's too high, you as the investor who has uh, filed this quiet title action, you can simply dismiss and uh, wait a little while, maybe a a year or two, collect rent on the property, and then file again. Um, And 
in my experience, though, the uh, the debt collecting companies there are, there are actually companies that specialize in this. There's one down in Texas that I'm thinking of in particular um, that buy these mortgages, the old uh, mortgages. They are not really interested in fighting you really hard. They just want to uh, get a number on the table and and get some money. I know the company to which you refer. They are a, they are a big defaulted mor- uh, note buyer. I know somebody in Dayton who got a call from that company saying, wait, what are you doing? We do have a lien. And uh, they settled a $39,000 mortgage for two grand and, and actually got clear title that way. So, uh, yes, uh, we're going to come back and talk more about the details of this idea of the quiet title action. I hope you listeners are as excited about this as I am. If you are in the Cincinnati area, in fact, you need to come to the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meeting tomorrow night. That's Thursday. And uh, listen to Joe give an entire hour and a half presentation about this exact topic. You can get more information about that at CincinnatiRIA.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can stay in touch with Real Life Real Estate on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Real Life Real Estate Radio, or better yet, by joining our email list at askvina.com. Almost every week we have some sort of special list uh, gift for listeners at askvina.com. This week it's a 27-page ebook about negotiating with sellers. So be sure and get on the list so that you can get weekly notifications of what's going on here at Real Life Real Estate and out in the real estate investing world at askvina.com. Talking today to Joe Lucas about quiet title actions, and I'm betting there are some questions out there about how this works. You can give us a call with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. So, Joe, so far this is this is what this is the process we've kind of gone through verbally. One way or another, a seller contacts you and they are in this situation. So sometimes they find you. Some sometimes they they get that ticket from the city and they go, "Oh my gosh!" How did they call the city and the city says, "Yes, you still own it." And they're shocked and they're looking for somebody to buy their house and they call you. Sometimes you contact them because they had a vacant house, whatever the case may be. You are saying to them, your situation is, you owe $70,000 on this house that, let's face it, is going to sell for seven. Your back taxes are building up. Your city fines are going to continue now that you're on their radar. Would you like to just sign it over to me and I will take care of things from here on out? And the seller says, yes, please. Where do I sign? And and that really is how they were. I mean, I've, I've, I have maybe one out of 10 of these people that say, oh, no, I need a lot of money for this. Because they know they they're not getting any money for this house. They owe, they owe more than it's worth, and so you now proceed to something that you sort of you 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 talked about it, but you sort of said it quickly, which is you said you proceed to fix it up and rent it. That's right. And uh, here's uh, when there's there's certain criteria that I as an investor set when I when I get one of these properties. The the criteria that I have is I would like to be able to collect enough money in rent in the first year. So if I collect 12 months rent, that that should pay for whatever I do to renovate the property and uh ideally also whatever I've paid uh, uh the seller for the property. So most of the time the seller they 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 just want to get rid of their property, so they're looking for 50 or 100 bucks. Um sometimes $500. But um, so once I get the property, I fix it up and I immediately rent it. Now, why do I set that one-year deadline? Well, let's suppose that that I uh, misread the bank's intentions and the bank 
right after I get the property, decides, hey, you know what? We really do want that property. We're going to foreclose and try and get our money. Well, foreclosure takes about a year. Um, if you uh, hire an attorney and you fight a foreclosure, you may be able to stretch it out a little bit longer. But um, unless the bank has made some kind of major procedural error, normally you're looking at the 12 to 18 month time range. So during that time, you're collecting rent on the property. Um, the property is being maintained. So uh, to some degree, you're doing the bank a favor. So they're going to get back a property that is all fixed up. But in the event that uh, I do lose the property, I've gotten back all of my investment plus hopefully a little bit of return. And so my risk as far as an investor goes is very low if I know that, hey, I'm going to be able to get all of my investment back within a year. So the worst case scenario, if that occurs, which is the bank taking the property, I, I get all my money back. I will have lost some effort, certainly, but um, I'm not actually going to be out of pocket. Mm-hmm. So uh, two things. Number one, wh what, what this means is in states where the foreclosure process does not take 12 months, your Georgias, your Texases, your, your uh, non-judicial foreclosure states where really you could be on the courthouse steps in 60 days, there's going to be another step here that you're going to have to talk to your attorney about. And that is the thing you said about looking at the mortgage and seeing if there is something that we can say, perhaps this mortgage isn't unenforceable. Uh, isn't enforceable because if it's going to be a 60 day process this probably isn't going to work we need to we need to have it tied up one way or another for a year that's correct so in a in a state where you don't have a long foreclosure period uh, the opportunity to engage in this process uh, isn't going to be the same so in in a state where you have a shorter period and i'm not i'm not licensed to practice in uh, texas or georgia but i'll take vena's word let's <laughs> assume that let's assume that you're going to be on the courthouse steps in 60 days okay you should not uh, get titled to the property and then immediately fix it up. In that state, if you get titled to property in the way we've been discussing, you would want to file your quiet title action first and see if the bank responds. Now, if you file a quiet title action against a bank on a mortgage, you need to be careful about doing that. If you file a lawsuit and, it, and it's frivolous, and you can be sanctioned by a court, uh, and that means that the court can award attorney fees to the other party against you. So you want to be careful about doing that. The, the mortgages that I'm filing quiet title actions on are mortgages where the bank has not been paid for two or more years, typically. Uh, they are properties where the bank has either never filed a foreclosure or they filed one and they dismissed it, and many, uh, many months, if not years, have passed. So you have, a, um, you have a good reason for filing a quiet title action because it appears that the uh, mortgage company has abandoned their interests. Now, uh, in most states, you have a statute of limitations for a mortgage that's a long time period so that they, they can enforce it after many years. But in reality, normally if you stop paying on your mortgage, they're going to file uh, uh, foreclosure within four to six months. They typically don't wait longer than, than about a year. A year is really the outside limit. Once a year has passed and they haven't filed, the odds... Uh, get to be pretty good that they're not going to exercise their right to foreclose. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're warning people against is is this thing that this guy here in Cincinnati was doing about 18 months ago where he was he was like forging deeds to himself and then filing quiet title actions on people's houses that had not intended to give him <laughs> their houses like 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 I think he moved into one and, and and the people came home from vacation and he said I own your house cuz I filed a quiet title action and that's not what we're talking about here. Right and I think I think there's a actually I had a um 
a, uh, uh, I don't want to call him a student of mine, but it was a, it was a client who was trying to engage in this uh, same business model. And he uh, showed me a newspaper article about uh, a guy that he knew who had uh, essentially moved into houses and changed the locks and filed a quiet title action. Well, when I uh, move into these houses, and I don't actually physically live in them, but when I move into these houses and I take possession and change the locks, I'm doing so because I have a deed from the prior owner, and I didn't forge the deed. You know, they sign it themselves. <laughs> You're not trying to quiet the former owner right out of his own title. <laughs> no, as, absolutely not. But when when the former owner is willing to give me the property, I go into possession under the color of you know having a having a good deed, and then at that point I can file a quiet title action. So so in, if if this were Georgia or as Vina said, it would take uh, you know a much shorter period to foreclose. I would want to do my quiet title action first and then fix up the property. Um, but here in Ohio, where foreclosures are slow um, and where investor or excuse me uh, lender behavior is pretty um, uh, how do you say uh, uh, classifiable um, you can you can identify the situations in which a quiet title action is likely to succeed mm-hmm. you 're listening to real life real estate if you have questions for Joe Lucas about quiet title actions eight seven 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 two nine six five eight is the number to call. You can also send us an email at askvina at gmail dot com let 's go to line one and talk to Cappy from Cincinnati. Cappy, welcome to real life real estate hey vina how 's it going very good how are you i 'm pretty good hey it 's ironic that you guys are covering this because this is something that I was dealing with today as a matter of fact in my neighborhood there is a duplex. It appears that um, that is vacant. One of the windows on the upstairs unit is board up, boarded up. So I checked the, the, uh, the tax assessor's website. It looks like it's still in the previous owner's name. But I then checked the clerk of court's website, and it looks like two years ago they for the bank foreclosed. I won't mention the bank, but it looks like they, they filed foreclosure on it. So I called the REO department of that bank, and the lady sounded real kind of, uh yeah yeah that property sure like she had no idea what i was talking about Mm -hmm. so she said well you know we may be selling it here in a little bit i don't know you might want to check uh you know this auction website because and i said you know is there any time frame and she said yeah i'm not really sure is this one of those situations where it probably has a zombie title and she has no concept of what i'm talking about here's the key cappy since you already looked it up on the on the court clerk's website what was the last what was the last filing in the suit? Was it was it for was it sheriff sale happened and the money was paid no. out? Was no, it? No, it looks like the it went uh, when I talked to I can't recall the office, but I talked to somebody and they said that the uh, they did they tried to sell the tax lien and didn't. So now it's listed as tax lien pending. But there's uh, I think there's three thousand there's the seventy five dollar fee and then there's like three thousand worth of back taxes on it. They tried to sell the lien and couldn't. Uh, the bank foreclosed on it, like I said, in, in uh, July of 2013, and it's just sitting there because mm-hmm. the bank hasn't done anything with it. They haven't even gotten their name on title. It's just, and it's, like I said, it's just sitting there. I'm not sure if it's one of these, if, if it's the type of situation that, that, uh, that you guys are talking about now, or should I be patient and just wait and see uh, uh, if they actually do sell it? Now, here's one caveat, too. There was a piece of mail sitting on the porch because I went to the front door. It's been winterized and everything. But when I went to the front door, I looked at the piece of mail, and it appears that the, the previous owner, who I wrote a letter and he hadn't responded because I, I believe he passed away, because it, it, there's a, a letter from a funeral home addressed to the family. So I'm assuming that this gentleman has passed away. 
And is it in probate? Is it just floating out there in the ether? I have no clue, but I was trying to find out as much information as I could on it, and then you guys were talking about it, so I figured I'd give a call. Okay, Cappy. Uh, this is Joe Lucas. Yep. So you got a couple things going on here. First off, you have a mortgage foreclosure, okay? At the end of the mortgage foreclosure, if it was a successful foreclosure, there should be an auction, there should be a sheriff's auction, and there should be a confirmation entry. The confirmation entry would say that it's sold and money is being distributed this way, and the sheriff's deed should be issued forthwith, which normally means like th two, three months, okay? So okay. Um, you need to look at the last date in the mortgage foreclosure. What's the last, um, the, the dates of the last few entries and see, is it, does it look like it's coming to a close or was it abandoned? If the mortgage foreclosure was abandoned, you would typically see that they withdrew it from auction or maybe they didn't even get a judgment. So normally the, the sequence goes, you file a complaint, you get a judgment, you send it to auction, you have the auction, then you have a confirmation. So if the mortgage foreclosure okay. stopped short of a sale and short of a confirmation, then, then that means that the bank may have lost interest in the property. The second thing that you talked about was a tax lien a certificate or something like that. That's separate. That's the, that's the county saying that they're owed money and they want to collect it. Um, when you're tax lien certificate eligible, that just means that the county is permitted to sell the tax lien to a third-party investor uh, and sell off the right to collect those taxes. It's just like selling a, uh, uh, selling a promissory note, essentially. Sure. Um, okay, so uh, that should not the, – the taxes are always going to accrue. That should not really have any uh, bearing on your interest in the property other than you need to know – what the uh, total amount of uh, delinquent taxes are, not just what the county treasurer is owed, but also when they sell the tax lien, it looks, at least on the county uh, auditor website, it'll, it'll look like the uh, taxes were paid. But they weren't paid. They were just uh, sold. The right to collect them was sold off. So you need to add up what, what showing is due and owing on the county website plus whatever the tax lien certificate amount is. Um, and then if the person has passed away, uh, you are going to have to go through probate to get the property transferred, and you're going to have to get a surviving family member to, um, uh, I want to say, round up all the heirs and get them to agree to some kind of a transfer. Um, the other thing that you should look for if it's a um, uh, if if the person has passed away, a lot of times there's a Medicaid lien that gets filed. Um, Medicaid liens are beautiful things because they discourage other investors who don't know any better, but. Um, if 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 somebody uh, received end of life care, their Medicaid lien could be several hundred thousand dollars. But uh, a little known fact is that the um, Attorney General's Office, the Ohio Attorney General's Office, they um, farm out these liens to local attorneys to try and collect, and they will take much much less than the face value of the uh, liens. A lot of times they'll settle for a few thousand dollars. Um, so it, I mean, if the property has significant value, I mean, it may be worthwhile to investigate trying to settle that lien because they don't necessarily have to be paid off in full. So, right. Okay. So, so Cappy, you have a particularly complicated situation here. Potentially, right. we've got okay. we've not only got the usual is it or is it not a zombie foreclosure because it is actually possible that they went all the way through the foreclosure, got the deed, and it's been sitting on somebody's desk for two years. That wow. is that that could have happened, or it could have. Okay. It could have been transferred in a bulk package to somebody else, and that's why the lady sounded so confused. She knew that they were servicing it, but she also knows they don't own it. There, there's a couple things that could be going on there. So go back okay. and check. Go back and check the case you looked at, mm -hmm. and see what that last stage of the mortgage foreclosure was. You can also go downtown to the courthouse and ask for the probate file. Now that you know the owner's name, you can say, "I, I need, right. a, I need a probate file on this person." And if probate was never opened, you've got problem. D, which is <laughs> which is probate's going to need to be opened, and and by that time between 
the fact that there's a tax lien pending, uh, opening probate's going to cost money, and if the heirs were especially motivated to do that, they probably would have done it already. You may have just priced yourself right out of this property. Right. But doing the research will only take you a couple hours, and you can sort of see where you are. Right. Now, the, um, the, the, how to find the heirs? I mean, is that a thing just got to hire a private if there is a pro here? If there is a probate file, it names mm-hmm. the executor, and it also names the heirs. Got it. Okay. That's right. Now, Cappy, I will tell you, my guess is that probate was never opened on that estate because the property mm-hmm. would have been transferred out of the uh, uh, decedent's name, the, the dead uh, party's name, uh, right. by the end. So. Most likely, what you need to do is you just need to look on, like, Google, and you can look for uh, the name of the owner and just say, you know, if it's John Smith, so you would say John Smith Obituary, Cincinnati, Ohio. You can probably find an obituary online, and normally obituaries name the heirs. They name the children. Got it. And that's who you need. You need the name of the children or a surviving spouse or, if there's no children or surviving spouse, some other family member. Um, and you Makes can sense. you can look them up uh, on, on a just a general purpose website like whitepages.com or something like that. Sure. Okay. Hey, thanks a bunch. I really appreciate it. All right, Cappy, glad we were doing the show today when you needed it. And uh, uh, Joe, I've I've actually heard of people sort of quiet titling um, even estate properties where there was an error that was just unfindable or um, I I just ran across a case with this recently where a mortgage holder had a property where the their borrower had died and the heirs were basically refusing to open probate <laughs> because right. they they were like we don't you know as soon as we do you're just going to take this building away and they filed I think some sort of modified quiet title action to quiet the estate right and you can do that now now the issue is is that if you can't find somebody how do you serve them like courts require that you serve people so or serve a defendant in order to win a default judgment. So um, eventually a court may permit you to serve someone by publication, um, but in order to do that, the court is going to ask you to demonstrate uh, pretty exhaustively um, what efforts you've gone to to try and locate uh, the person that you can't find. Okay, very good. Um, So, yay, real-life situation. We're not making this up. These properties really do exist. (laughs) And uh, we're talking today about quiet title actions on zombie foreclosures with attorney Joe Lucas, who is speaking tomorrow night at the Cincinnati RIA meeting. So if you are within the sound of my radio voice as opposed to listening to us online at wmkvfm.org, you might want to make some time to get there tomorrow night. He's speaking at 7.30. It's at the uh, CAA building at the corner of Langdon Farm and Reading, and that is uh, open to members and first-time guests, no problem, members of other OREA-associated groups like Greater Dayton RIA. So you, you already had said, Joe, that 75% of the time you'll send these these notifications out to the bank saying, hey, I don't think, or the court's sending it, I guess you're filing the suit, the court's sending it, and the the, the the quiet title action quiet title action basically says if if you have some interest in this property and you intend to enforce it you need to step up and say so and 75% of the time they don't answer and the other 25% of the time they answer because that note has actually been sold to someone for pennies on the dollar who's willing to settle it for pennies on the dollar what could go wrong here <laughs> i mean what's what's what 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 is our worst case scenario okay well uh, filing a quiet title action means that you're you're trying to uh, wake up the bank, sort of. So if you can imagine, if you guys have seen the movie The Hobbit, 
uh, Bilbo Baggins kind of goes into uh, the the dragon's chamber and he like picks up a, a a coin or a cup or I can't remember what it was. Um, well, what does that do? That that stirs the dragon. It, he awakens the dragon. Well, the bank, um, and I'm sure there are many fine people that work at the bank, but the bank here is is the dragon. And if you poke the dragon by filing a quiet title action, it is certainly possible you could wake up the bank. And that could mean that the bank wakes up, they look at the property, and they say, oh, yeah, we did want to foreclose on that property. We just dropped the file behind the desk in, in Tim's room, or, or, you know, we let Tim go because he took long coffee breaks, and uh, he didn't transfer his files to another processor, uh, foreclosure processor. So it is possible that you can awaken the dragon, and the dragon will um, pursue their remedy, which would, would be a foreclosure. Now... The, the key to this investment process uh, and this investment strategy is to identify properties where you know to a reasonable degree of certainty that, hey, the bank shouldn't be interested. So even if they do wake up and if they do say, hey, what, what about this property? And, you know, you have two or three smart people at the bank sit down and look at the property and they say, well, you know what? There's a reason why we didn't foreclose before and it really doesn't make sense for us to foreclose now. Let's just let this one go, okay? So if that is the case, then it's not that the bank is asleep. It's that the bank made a conscious decision not to uh, reply. Now, there are some other situations, such as um, like Bank A might have made the loan, and then Bank A may have assigned the loan to Bank B. Bank B would record an assignment with your county recorder. Then Bank B goes out of business, and then Bank C uh, takes over. Well, if Bank C doesn't record an assignment, you're you're filing your your lawsuit against Bank B, not Bank C, and Bank B doesn't exist anymore. So you're really you're serving a state agency called the Secretary of State, who doesn't really respond. So it's possible that you can win a default simply because the uh, the mortgage assignment to the current holder was never recorded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if that were to happen, and six months later Bank C pulls their act together and goes, "Oh, we need to go and find all the stuff from that we got from Bank B that we need to foreclose on." Is your quiet title action still good, or can they come back retroactively and say, oh, no, 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 you did not serve us? Well, when you get your judgment, your judgment is good uh, as, a, as a release of the mortgage. So you would record that judgment. And then another, uh, the defendant, the bank, can file what's called a Rule 60B motion to vacate. And that what that does is they, they have to argue that due to some excusable neglect, uh, they didn't get notice, and that's why they didn't file an answer. Okay, uh, but the um, the burden of proof is pretty high for excusable neglect on a company, and so uh, they really only have a year to file that. But it's a it's a pretty high bar for them to meet. Wow, we could talk about this for another hour and a half, and luckily you get the chance to do that tomorrow night at Cincinnati Rea. If you'd like to come to that meeting, go to CincinnatiRea.com, find out more about it, and we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then. Happy investing.